Banksy's musical podcast is brought to you by Canna Provisions, an adult-use cannabis dispensary that has the largest selection of cannabis products in western Massachusetts, with locations both in Holyoke and in Lee. They're much more than a dispensary. They're a destination. Check them out at cannaprovisions.com. That's cannaprovisions.com. Please be over 21, and please consume responsibly. Bexy's musical podcast. In 1987, I had a roommate whose name was Dave. Now, Dave worked in a very trendy record store back then and would regularly come home with a big, thick, fat stack of records every week. Now, most of them were for bands that I was not even aware of, at least not yet. But on occasion, he would get his hands on stuff that I did enjoy. And on this particular summer day, Dave presented me with a copy of the 1987 self-titled album by Echo and the Bunnymen, an album that, I should point out, had been signed by three members of the band. And I was such a big fan of the Bunnymen back then, I thought this was great. But because it was a signed copy, Dave insisted that it never get played because doing so would decrease the value of this particular record. Now, I ignored that suggestion and played it anyway because I never had any intention of selling it. I only had plans to play it and play it loudly. 35 years later, the record is still in my possession, and I'm talking to Echo and the Bunnyman guitar player Will Sargent today, so today is a pretty big day. Now, depending on who you want to believe, the very second best band to ever come out of Liverpool, England, was the Beatles. There are also some people who would tell you that the Beatles were slightly better than second place. A compelling case could be made either way, because there's also a very good chance that either number one or number two on that list was Echo and the Bunnymen. Since 1979, Echo and the Bunnymen have released 13 studio albums, 10 live albums, and 30 singles. And between 1979 to 1987, the classic lineup of Echo and the Bunnymen featuring Will Sargent, Ian McCulloch, Les Patterson, and Pete DeFridis hit the UK top 40 12 times with classics like The Killing Moon, The Cutter, Lips Like Sugar, The Back of Love, Never Stop, Seven Seas, and quite a few more. This was a band that was built on an undeniable legacy throughout the world, and Will Sargent has been through every single step along the way. In fact, he's the band's longest-serving member, and while Will Sargent and Ian McCulloch have been touring over the last few months, Will was able to release the first of three autobiographies, the first one entitled Bunnyman, which is now available wherever you buy books. And as a longtime fan, it was a hell of a thrill to finally get a chance to talk to the guy who signed my record, Will Sargent from Echo and the Bunnyman on Baxi's Musical Podcast. I want to show you something that, uh, you know, back in the 80s, I had a roommate who worked at a record store. And he comes back uh, from to the apartment after a day of work, and he hands me this. He says, I got you a present. And he gives me the, the 1987 Echo and the Bunnyman record. Yeah. On the back, three of you guys have signed it. Now, right. I was told to never play this, ever. Don't ever put it on a turntable because it would affect the value. And I said... Of course I'm going to play this record. So long and the short of it is I played the living hell out of this record for years, and I absolutely loved it. And then one of the things I cannot figure out is is which one of you guys were signing this. I mean, I, th- I definitely have your signature here, and I think 
Yeah. I think that's less there, and I don't know. And this is the one I can't understand. That's Pete. That's definitely Pete. Now that's so that's interesting. So now that makes they, it to they need Mac on there. They yeah, need Mac on there. So I don't know if that's uh, if it makes it any more valuable, but uh, that is something that has been in my collection since the very day it came out in the U.S. So that was uh, that was awesome. You can definitely say that's Pete. Yeah, it, 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 I, I I just wanted to I just wanted to be sure, knowing what you know, and unfortunately happened to him. But I have to tell you, I mean, you guys could write great songs, but your penmanship is terrible. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> congratulations on the book. I'm about like 50 pages away from finishing it, and I and I really really enjoyed every bit of it and, and i was uh, i was reading that there are the plan is that there are two more volumes coming out tell me about that and and the process of going back and and relooking at all of these things in your life and in your career especially as it you know starts to get closer and closer to the band developing and becoming successful tell me about that uh, well you know the story's already written isn't it and it's like written in here you know I, the thing the way i see it it's probably not the same way it's like Les or Pete or Matt would have seen it, you know what I mean? But it's it's my story, so that's it. This is the way I've seen it. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the true version, you know. So I like to be kind of fair with everybody. And yeah, it's it's not that difficult because you know it's just a it's and plus like you know, it's brilliant having the internet because you can go back and you get the exact day when you know when you did a particular gig where something weird happened. Like I'm just about to write about a gig with madness and um bad manners and it was like an experimental experimental kind of like lineup <laughs> you know because these sort of like skinhead bands or whatever you know so bad manners go on they started getting a load of grief because they had a black drummer from uh, the crowd and uh, you know, they they managed to get through there so we went on they hated us <laughs> and we were getting bottles thrown at us and all that. It was in the days when you could still have bottles in the auditorium or whatever. It was in this place called <laughs> Electric Ballroom. It was in London. I went there to see the Ramones as well about the same time. And um, so we're getting bottled off and we lasted about three or four songs. And um, it was all like Skinhead, Zeke Hyland, you know, chanting, you know, all that stuff. It was like, it was a, a weird period over here where the, the far right... I'd become like a thing and they sort of drafted in the skinheads as their kind of stormtroopers. They were all just getting used like puppet, you know, like a, a puppet situation from these like nutters that were, you know. That always seemed like a really weird, a, a really weird thing to have developed, you know, in, in post-war England. I mean, you, I mean, England, yeah. you know, London was bombed and you talk about the ramifications of, of uh, World War II. It seems weird to me that there would be so much alliance with you know nazism with the skinheads in that environment it just seemed like a very strange thing to develop out of what england had just been through 15 plus years ahead of that yeah well i don't think there's a lot of thought goes into it you know <laughs> sitting around you know discussing it in a philosophical manner you know it's just like they like to rock they like to have a fight and they like to point fingers at people and and it's the people that they were like sort of in the the sort of leadership right they're the ones that laid these you know not exactly a grade students or whatever like i wasn't you know but you know i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but <laughs> you know they weren't exactly deep thinkers most of them so whose great idea was it to put you on the same stage as as madness and <laughs> bad manners well that's one of the things in research and i spoke to bill drummond about it he remembered it I, we couldn't remember who, who it was like 
yeah, we want to do this kind of radical mix up of the bands, you know, the new bands coming through. It's like, it was probably, well, it was 19, I think it was 1980, might have been 79. I'll have to look at the dates, but I'm pretty sure it was Pete DeFratis's first gig. That's a hell of a first gig. Well, yeah, there's a whole embarrassment factor of that as well. Like, you know, we had this young lad playing drums. He's only like, <laughs> and uh, we're getting bottled off by skinheads, Sea Kylan, and Welcome <laughs> 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 like, Swalwell. So I remember it was, I, I seem to remember being a bit like, God, this is Pete's first gig, and this has happened. Like, <laughs> it was either his first or very, you know, you know, because we hadn't done many, we didn't do many gigs, you know, and they were kind of spread out quite a bit. There wasn't yeah. like a tour, odd gigs every now and then. So then later on, we started getting into like doing proper tours. You know, once the album was out, we could have like tour support from the record label and that enabled us to get like a good sound man and sort of stuff. Well, I mean, you guys had pretty good success almost right out of the gate. I mean, the, the, the first singles come out and the first album comes out. And I mean, you guys are very, very different from a lot of the bands at the time, or at least it seems. I mean, if you want to, Talk about a a, a post punk genre or at least a period of time. Every, what's interesting to me is that everyone's kind of doing their own thing, and that no one's really yeah. trying that hard to be like somebody else. You're not emulating too much, and and I think you know you guys certainly had a uniqueness that is very different from the Cure or Susie and the Banshees or you know any of the other bands or the Fall or any of those other bands that were around approximately the same time. Everyone was trying very hard to do something unique, and I think it's one of the fascinating parts about those early '80s and those uh, and that and that time. Did, I mean, were you purposely trying to be different, or you know, were you just doing what you do? No, we were. It was like four characters all putting in their own ideas, you know, and nobody was like kind of saying, "Oh no, I want it this way," or you know, "You can't play the drums like that," or whatever, you know. And it was like, so you've got like four different views on the whole thing all coming together and it kind of gels in a weird way so you get like an odd mix and a, a melange of like sound you know and uh i think the other bands were doing the same thing the cure and that you know they had like a lot of a lot of input from like you know the other members and all that stuff it wasn't you know all down to robert's robert smith you know and it was a lot of it was because we were we didn't really know how it worked you know i didn't know how to construct a song particularly i knew it, you know okay, these chords sound good. Let's go, we need something else for a chorus or whatever. Let's try these chords, you know, and then, and you try, it'd be a bit of trial and error before you found the right ones, you know, and then um, it just sort of happened and nobody was thinking about it that much. You know, it was just like, good. Or And if it did remind you of something, if it was a band that you liked, you know, the Velvets or the Fall or the Doors or whatever, I'd be kind of pleased, you know. Yeah, you know, it'd be like, oh, like you know, the doors. That's great, you know, because I love the doors. <laughs> uh, but if it sounded like Kajagugu or uh, I don't know, Culture Club, it'd be like, nah, it's all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll get rid of that. I can see where I can see where a band might fight that urge. Yeah, you know, and we we avoided a lot of the obvious '80s sounds. You know, everyone had that synthesizer, the 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 DX7. Had that like crystally FM bright belt kind of sound that was all over like Howard Jones records or whatever, you know. That's not rock and roll, <laughs> you know. We wanted to be, we wanted the sounds to be a bit scuzzy and a bit kind of like, you know, cheap and nasty like the velvets, you know. 
it was a, a toss-up and it was always a fight as well because we were always like the record company obviously wanted us to sound slick and all that i didn't want to sound slick you know not what why i was doing it and i wasn't learning other people's songs or trying to learn zz top riffs or anything you know what i mean i'm not interested yeah so it's kind of lightly fun but not not what i wanted to do not after punk you know and it wasn't really called post-punk then we we still considered ourselves punks it was just this is the way punk was kind of hearing to me the you know bands that were like lumped in with punk were like you know they were interesting as well like perubu you know mm. wire you know uh even the fall and they weren't just like two minute kind of like angry rants were they you know they were kind of there was a bit more to it and so that was a lot of like i liked a lot of the american stuff you know television talking ads all that stuff all them bands you know they were they were the more interesting sort of things to me you know obviously we had joy division you know then and and um wire and gang of four they were all great you know yeah. i loved all them subway set where i wasn't too keen on i don't know like the ones that were just out and out kind of punky yeah the ramones did that better than anybody else anyway <laughs> what's interesting i was just you know that that early punk starts off you know with kids not really knowing how to write a song not knowing how to play a, how their instruments and not really knowing that much about about music in general but then all of a sudden with all the practice and all the rehearsal you get better at all of that stuff that's why i think you know that point like 1978 through maybe 84 85 maybe you, there's this an explosion of 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 great bands that yeah you're right i mean they are they are born out of punk you wouldn't necessarily draw a parallel between the first couple of damned records or, or the sex pistols, but you know, it is all kind of lumped um under a, an umbrella and you all are kind of coming off with the same types of inspiration. And I think that's one of the things that, that was so compelling about echo and the Bunnymen is that, you know, they were right in the middle of that. And in many ways it was almost like in some ways the best of the bunch. Well, I think we did have a lot of like, even so, you know, saying that we weren't like trying to be like certain bands or typical rock bands. There was a rock element there, you know. Billy's Terrace is quite rocky, you yeah. know. It's still got, got like rock elements, and I think to an American audience that was still sort of like a palatable thing, you know. They, I don't think, uh, like Devo are massive in America, aren't they? But they weren't that, you know. They were kind of weird, you know, in Peru. <laughs> so we come along and we're like, it's still, it's still rock, really, but yeah. it's got like psychedelic elements and it's got like you know new wave kind of elements like we hated all them terms i hated new wave the, the word post-punk you know that only came later when they had to think of something to call it you know <laughs> like get called uh, new psychedelia or um raincoat you know long mac <laughs> stuff or um gloomy you know this sort of thing you know, we like we did like gloomy stuff. You mentioned in the in the book the the kinds of music that you were listening to when you were young, and Jethro Tull was a was a band for you. But then there were also other bands that that not just influenced you, but they really influenced a lot. Status Quo, Doctor Feelgood, uh, the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. I mean, th those are like three bands that here in the states are almost unheard of. I mean, apart from you know, maybe one hit there from Status Quo or or whatever, but. They had no influence here in the United States, but they had massive influence in the UK. Tell me about 
those bands and, and why they were important to you? Well, Dr. Feelgood, you know, they had this great guitarist called Wilco Johnson who could sort of play lead and rhythm at the same time because mm. he did this weird flicky thing on the guitar where he'd sort of strum it down and then on the way up, his fingers had moved a little bit and he'd do like a little riff on the way up. So it was kind of like, how the hell is he doing that, you know? And they, you know, when you go, when you went to see them, you were just waiting for Wilco to kick off because it used to, the place used to just go nuts, you know? They were, they were just basically rhythm and blues songs, you know? There were a lot of them were cover versions, old songs, you know? Alex Harvey band, they had a theatrical element that was uh, like Alex Harvey's attitude on stage was not a million miles away from Johnny Rotten. You know, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Disdain for the audience, you know. There was like that sort of thing. But they, 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 had, they had a sort of comic book kind of vibe about them as well. They were all sort of, they were like almost like superheroes or something. <laughs> like kind of jumpsuits, tight jumpsuits and stuff and it sounds really cheesy, but when you're 14, it was great. You know? Yeah. As I'm reading the book, I'm, I'm going on to YouTube to see, to say, well, I don't know enough about the Alex Harvey band. So I'm, I went on YouTube and, and tried to see exactly what you described. And I saw it. I'm like, ah, okay. I can see if I'm 14 years old, you're absolutely right. That, that would be one of the bands I would fall in love with. The same reason why, you know, people like, you know, know them hair bands in the, in the eighties, you know, <laughs> when you're that like all that stuff you know i don't know why it's just you want your you want your pop stars and your rock stars to be larger than life and so was wilco johnson and so was lee brillo the singer with dr feelgood and um yeah who else did you mention it was the uh well st status quo was the other one okay oh, yeah. well well quo were like they were just pure power you know and i i'm like they always go on about like well, they only know three chords but they don't. They know more, way more than three chords, and it's like <laughs> they know the rock, you know. Yeah. And it's like same DC. It's the same sort of thing. You know, ACDC became massive worldwide. Quo were just as good, and you know, I don't know why. Like I saw ACDC at Eric's with Bon Scott, uh, not Eric's at the stadium in Liverpool with Bon Scott, and it was a, it was amazing. You know that, like you know, Angus uh, Young was was actually fifteen. <laughs> time you know i know he had that little school uniform on they had like that gimmick you know the school kid and he was actually a school kid but quo were um we all went to see quo because they were all like they were kind of like a biker band that was kind of like flirting with the biker kind of thing you know <laughs> and it's it sort of they were tied in with the a hippie movements as well you know it's like in the 70s early 70s hippie had sort of gone away from all flower power and all that and it had gone into this kind of like other area it was a bit more hell's angel a bit more kind of threatening you know you had all them riots in 68 and that you know outside grosvenor square and you know the american embassy about vietnam and all the rest of it you know it's it's, it's sort of gone a bit heavier it wasn't yeah. all like give them a flower it was like give them a punch you know so and that they were like a towards they were like a biker band so when you're a kid growing up in in liverpool when most people everywhere else think of Liverpool, they're really only thinking about one thing. And, uh, you know, I, I would imagine as a kid who's got an interest in music and comes from, you know, a tough background, the idea of, of being the next Beatles or the idea of, of having that example come from your own hometown is different than someone who's taking you know, the Beatles as an inspiration from, you know, 3000 miles away where it just doesn't seem plausible that you could make records or go on tour or, or have any level of fame. What kind of influence did the Beatles have as like, you know, just, you know, just like a hometown hero type of 
situation? Or did it matter to you that they were from Liverpool? It was kind of not as much a big deal as it is now. Like they've been kind of like tourist industry around the Beatles now. But then when punk was going 77 and all that, when I started going to Eric, it was um, nobody mentioned them, nobody would give a shit about them. They were like, you know, <laughs> they were a massive band around the world and all that, but it, they hadn't got the marketing right. You know, they haven't become like marketed as well as they are now, you know, like obviously amazing records, you know, they are brilliant records. And I said an interview about then. I said, I ate, I ate the Beatles, but you know, I didn't ate anything, but it was just something to say to be slightly controversial, you know, but we, we, you know, one of our first things in the paper, it was like the new Mersey beat. And we were all a bit pissed off with that. Well, we're not the Mersey beat. We're not anything. We, we don't want to be affiliated to anybody. You know, we're our own thing, you know, no matter where we're from. That was kind of the thing then. Like, I know, I remember, I, I didn't come from actual Liverpool. I'm like eight miles outside Liverpool. It doesn't sound like much, but to this country, like, you know what I mean? Our enemies are just down the motorway in Manchester. You know, it's only by the way, they might as well be, might as well be, you know, Russia and the Ukraine or something. <laughs> you know, it's like that heavy. Like, you could wear a Manchester United badge in Liverpool and get your head kicked in. But it's all to do with football and tribalism and stupid stuff like that. Like my mate, Rogue Denko, he actually did get his head kicked in, in Liverpool for, for having a Man United fan. Um, funnily enough, he, his, his dad was Ukrainian. You know, it's mm. weird. Yeah, so, uh, like, I like, you know, I did like the psychedelic side of the Beatles. You know, I loved all, you know, within you, without you, all the George stuff, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows was great. And, you know, Hey Bulldog and all them things, Helter Skelter, they're all great things. But, you know, some of them I can live without, you know, Long and Winding Road, whatever, you know, like it's a brilliant song, but I wouldn't be listening, not, not my kind of cup of tea. One of the first songs that I heard from Echo the Bunnyman that, that that instantly caught my ear was The Cutter from uh, from the Porcupine record. I just thought such a great, great song. You know, as I'm reading, you know, I'm, I'm reading the story about the record company's reaction to Porcupine. And uh, that it wasn't particularly favorable, and that they wanted you to re-record the entire thing. And I can imagine, you know, as, as a young man who's trying to establish his career, when an authority figure tells you to do it all over again, and you're proud of what you've done, that the reaction to that probably isn't exactly, oh no, we'd be happy to re-record it again. Um, Tell me about the relationship that you guys had with record companies. Cause I know that's not the only incident in which, you know, there was some disagreement about the direction you were going in. Yeah. We got that all the time because, you know, like say we were coming from kind of an underground world of La Fall and subway sect and all this sort of stuff. And they wanted us to sound nice, you know, and like <laughs> we wanted to sound what how we wanted to sound like, so it's weird. All these people on the outside, they think they know what you should sound like when you're the one playing the bloody stuff. And, and like, to be fair, they did stick with us. You know, they stuck with us. Um, probably nowadays, we'd have been dropped, you know, the first record, although it might have seemed successful or whatever. It only sold 30,000 copies or something, which is not a lot, even, you know, then, like, you know, it'll sell more than that now. But, you know, then it wouldn't have, you know, it was like nothing, really. I think we got a, eventually we got a silver disc for it or something, you know. We, we were always arguing with them. It was like, you know, why have you done it like that? Because that's the way we want it to sound. Like, you know, they, they couldn't get their heads around it. 
why don't you want to sound like Phil Collins? You know what I mean? <laughs> why don't you want to sound like these big production things? And, you know, they brought us in one day and they played us, uh, you know, Sledgehammer. From by, Peter Gabriel. Uh, and it's all done on fair lights and it's all crisp and, you know, amazing sound. You know, like I said, want you to sound like that. And we're like looking at each other thinking, well, we don't want to sound like that. <laughs> you know, it was like stuff like that all the time, like crazy stuff where they just missed the point of what we we're about. Yeah, you know, we wanted to be dangerous and a bit like, you know, like the doors or the velvets, you know. We did we did go in and do porcupine again, like yeah, and changed quite a lot. Kept some of it, I think, but we we changed a lot. And to be fair, the cutter did turn out better than the than the than the original one. You've got people pushing you all the time to do things, so it's sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it always annoys you. A while back, I had an interview with uh, with Andy Partridge, and uh, from XTC, and he he was telling us, gonna... yeah, he was telling a story about how the record company wanted them to sound like you know, like ZZ Top, which to me is oh. absolutely comical. So, I mean, you're you're telling a guy like Andy Partridge to sound like like those guys. It's just, did you not hear everything I've produced for the last eight years? Not not the ZZ Top when they did Fandango and all that stuff. Right. It's the ZZ Top when Sharp Dressed Man and all that. You know, all them <laughs> sort of like cheesy 80s, big snare drum sound things. You know, I know what you mean. Like, I know, like, I know Andy Partridge is a proper psych merchant, any psychedelia. When you guys come up with a song like Killing Moons, when you write a song like that and you produce it and you realize that you got something kind of special. To me, there must be an anticipation with the artists when they come up with something that they know is good. That it just, you must be like sitting on your hands and saying, I can't wait for this to get out in the world. Or, or did you not see it as having the importance that it had for people? Like we all liked it and we thought it was great, you know. But there was like elements in there that are a bit out there, you know, and we don't know whether they've become accepted, you know. Like there's like that whole kind of like, in the choruses, it like sweeps in with like a reverse reverb thing, and and it's kind of like it's it's not exactly happy, you know. It's sort of grown into its own being, almost like you know through like people using it in films and all that stuff, and you know the mood of it is amazing. You know, it's kind of like a mood piece, you know. So they use it in films a lot, and uh, it's sort of uh, developed into this other thing, you know. I, I don't really know, you know. At the time, I remember thinking, this is great, but we, we put real drums on it at the beginning. Like, you know, it's got real drums on, but it, they had like, you know, like a proper drum kit with sticks. Peter done like a whole thing with sticks, you know. And I think it was Mac that said that he didn't like the sticks. He thought it was too ordinary. And really? got Pete to... So this is like, yeah, this is a major deal. This is like, you've got a 24-track recording. It's a tape. There's no click, no click track. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not, it's not MIDI it all up and make it all synced up. We had to rub off all the drums and Pete re-drummed it using brushes. So it gave it that sort of like real kind of almost like a jazzy kind of more loose kind of feel. Pretty sure it was Mac that, that thought of that, you know, thought let's let's try it with the brushes because he'd been he'd been experimenting with brushes and stuff, you know. Um and we, we were really into that song Take Five, you know, by Dave Brubeck. And yeah. it's like a whole drum solo bit in the middle which is all like this sort of like amazing brush wear so we went into the studio in in liverpool and uh he redid it but we had to 
you had to just rub off the drums to because it was you know it was twenty four track tape. And, you know, ten ten other tracks are probably drums. That's an amazing thing for somebody to do. You know, without a click, yeah, you just play it to the back. You know, just shows how great a drummer he was. I want to ask you about you know that Pete died in an accident. Uh, you know, after that that album in in eighty seven, and then you know you guys fracture kind of after that. The, the band kind of falls apart, and you know Ian does his own thing for for a while and you and Les decide to, uh, to keep things together. I mean, I, I, I know that was not an easy decision to keep going on and it probably wasn't a, uh, an easy decision to decide to take a break for a while. But I think in any band, you're always kind of fighting obstacles, whether it's internally, uh, you know, in this case, uh, a, a death of one of your members. I mean, these are pretty significant obstacles to overcome as a guy in the middle of all of that. And a guy that keeps, you know, wants to keep this thing going. How hard was that of a decision to make, to, to keep going after losing Ian and Pete within a year? It was very hard, but it was, it was like the bloke from the record label phoned us up. And like, he knew, you know, Macca was leaving and all that. And he said, uh, why don't you just get another singer? And at that point, the relationship between us wasn't great, you know, because he, he said it, it starts... You know, I think, well, maybe we can, maybe we can. Like Buzzcocks did it, Genesis did it, you know, such and such did it. You know, they've got them, you know, um, Fleetwood Mac did it, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, it seemed to be like a thing that in the 70s or whatever that people were always changing, you know, uh, members of bands and things and singers and stuff like that. So it was kind of, I, in my heart, I knew it was like a bit of a crap thing, but because the relationship was so weird anyway and we've done 10 you know i remember we've done like 10 years of work to get to where we were and it was kind of like oh man that's it we're all just thrown on the scrappy it's the same thing happened with pink floyd isn't it you know it's like you know when waters left and it was just carried on you know yeah. it's kind of caused a bad vibe and it's still a bad vibe now yeah even worse yeah we did it and carried on then pete got killed and we thought, well, we've come this far, we'll carry on. You know? The day that Pete got killed, uh, Jake was fixing his motorbike. He was our keyboard player, lads in Liverpool. And the lad that turned up to ask him, can you help me fix my motorbike, was Damon Reese, who became our drummer. Oh, really? That's weird, isn't it? It is weird. Like, yeah. So jump ahead a couple of years. You and Ian, you know, at this point, I think you know Les has decided to kind of retire from music, but... You and Ian decide to, to reform the band and, and start performing again. What was the reaction that, that you the two of you felt when you start playing live again? Were you surprised by the reaction? What what did that feel like? When you're in a band and, and like everything has just happened as though it was destined to happen, you know, mm. you feel like you're invincible. It's a weird thing. You, like it's like, you know, when he left, none of us were that bothered until like the reality hits. You know, it, it takes time for you to sort of think, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, it was quite important. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And uh, it was, it's just, um, yeah, you just kind of fall into it somehow. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. You guys are, I, I know, as far as the, the tour, uh, you're touring now, you know, I know you've postponed I'm, a bunch of dates and you will be touring again, but, but where is the status of you guys performing live right now and you're doing a couple of festivals or at least you're scheduled for a couple of festivals i think may or june but as far as uh you know getting back on the road with with the covid you know restrictions and 
cancellations. Where are you guys at right now? Well, we've just done a tour for five weeks around Britain and, and we went to Ireland and Scotland as well. Right. You know, and it was great. You know, played amazingly. The crowd were going nuts. And, you know, it was pretty, it was a bit weird here and there because we're not getting on particularly well, <laughs> I'd say. <Yeah. laughs> but that doesn't affect our playing. It doesn't affect our gig, you know. Yeah. We still put like everything into that. Um, and it was good. You know, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I missed it. And great getting back out there. You know, we did some brilliant gigs. Brilliant gigs. With uh, with your relationship with, with Ian as it stands now, I mean, can you foresee ever making new music again? I mean, I know you just, you know, re- re-released the, f- the first four records on on vinyl but as far as like new stuff i mean do you think that's still a possibility we have have done some new stuff you know um you know i've played on a few of these things and um i don't know i don't really know what's going on with it well i hope you do i mean as a fan you never want to stop hearing new stuff it's just not the same anymore yeah it's not like i don't really get much input that's all not (laughs) so it's not it's like it's not the the same it doesn't have the same uh like i like being creative and i'm not being that creative you know i'm not allowed but as far as working with with ian creatively it's a, it, the times are different yeah it's not it's like you know it's a weird one well i have to say will i i really did enjoy the book a lot and i and uh i'm looking forward to the next couple of uh, of volumes do you have a time frame and when the uh, the next book is coming out? Well, no, I don't know. But like I've started it. Yeah. You know, I've just I've, I've done a couple of chapters and onto when uh, like I'll be t- I'll be writing about that madness gig, I think. But I like I like to like when I did the first one, what I really liked about it was all the stuff when I was a kid. I, I, when the band starts, it's a bit like you're worried, you know, it's it's just you don't want to step on anybody's toes or, you know, obsess the apple cart too much, you know. You have to as a uh, dealing with sensitive situation. But yeah, so I you know, and I like I like the social history aspect of the first one as well. Like there was a couple of people, like not many, like, but most people, well, nearly all people loved it, but there was a couple of people going, Oh, he doesn't talk about the bunny man until the end. Well, it's like tough. It's my life. It's my memoir. It's like you know, I wasn't all about the bunny man from the day I was born. You know, um, there's more to it than that. You know, but now it's we're into the bunny man. But I still want to put in things that are going on around in the periphery of 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 you know, um, because it sort of gives it like you know a flavour of what was going on in the world, and it's not like it, it wasn't all roses. You know, I'm. Like you said before, you know, we were battling the, with the record label a lot. I don't think they've ever liked anything we've ever done. I also think it's important that if you're going to write a book, you know, a, a memoir, that you give people a sense of of who you are as a person and why you're there, as opposed yeah. to someone who's, you know, writing something and it's only about the band and it's only like a, you know, like an itinerary rather than an actual story. You know, the, the book Bunny Man kind of gives you a sense of, well, who is Will Sargent? And I don't think yeah. there's any question about who Will Sargent is and, you know, where you come from. I mean, it's very, yeah. it's very, very clear. And the anecdotes in the, in the book are, are great and they're, they're funny and, and they're, they're interesting. Well, you know, they want to get the funny ones in there as well, like that, because we've had a lot of, a lot of things that were funny, you know, yeah. but things that are funny to you aren't funny to others. And you can, 
you know, get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I appreciate the time today. Best of luck with the book. And like I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to the, uh, the next one coming out. Nice one. Thanks a lot. All right. Got I appreciate it. it. Bye-bye. Yeah. The name of Will Sargent's book is Bunny Man. Volume two and three are still on the way. I hope you liked the show. If you did, you can like it, share it, subscribe to it, tell all your friends about it, and you can email me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. Thanks again to uh, Canna Provisions for their support, and you can support them by logging on to cannaprovisions.com. We'll see you next time on Baxi's Musical Podcast. <laughs>